0: Please.
1: truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide to Funk. Shop for official Truth and & Rhythm and & Funk and & Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg@funkinstuff.net. at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm honored to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership the iconic R&B and funk musician, singer, composer, and producer Charles Wright, best known as leader of the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band and its classic tune, Express Yourself. Starting in 1967, the group released five grooving albums, and Wright added four more under his own name through the mid-1970s. Among the other hits were Do Your Thing Till You Get Enough, Loveland, and Your Love Means Everything to Me. Right up through recent years, Wright has continued to perform and record as well as Pen his autobiography called Up From Where We've Come. And he's even hosted a TV show. Charles, thanks for coming on the show. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm fine. How are you doing
1: today? I'm doing real well. It's very good to see you. Thank you for, for joining us.
0: That's same. All right. No problem.
1: And you're coming to us from Los Angeles, right?
0: Yes. Where are you, by the way?
1: I'm actually in Charlotte, but I'm from Los Angeles originally. I've been representing with the Lakers hat, so, you know.
0: I see. You're a Laker man. <laughs> Still, uh, all right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I grew up uh, in, mostly in Santa Monica and was living in the uh, Fox Hills area before I came out here. Okay. So not too far uh, down down from the uh, forum and, and all that good stuff. So. Yeah. Um, yeah so I wanted to jump in you know you're from Mississippi and that's you know stories well documented in your book that I mentioned and a uh, great compelling story amazing story of of how you you know came from there and moved to LA as a teen and became immersed in in the doo-wop scene and gravitated towards music yeah. what was it about music that just clicked for you and made you decide to pursue that as your passion?
0: You know, the early part of my life, uh, I was not privy to hear very much music, especially in secular music. My father was a very religious man, and he had been convinced by his, I guess his sharecropping boss, that the blues was the devil's music. So I I couldn't listen to the devil's music. I came to LA at age of 12. Then I went to uh, elementary school. After that, I went to uh, junior high school. And on the way home, these kids would be singing these songs by the Clovers and Lord Price and and the Drifters. And, And I was wondering where they was hearing these songs. And I found out that they were listening to the Hunter Hancock show. Hunter Hancock played all the new music by black artists that came out. He was a white man, but he played all black music. I don't know if you've he heard hip to Hunter Hancock. He should be.
1: No, before my time, but certainly interesting to hear about him.
0: Maybe not in your neighborhood. <laughs> anyway, so I started listening to that music and I became enthralled. I started buying records. Didn't have a record player. I couldn't play it at my home because my father wouldn't allow it. So I'd go to my cousin's house or my friend's house, and I coaxed them into playing some of my records sometimes. And uh, then by the time I got to high school, the first day I went to high school, as a matter of fact, I went and done my orientation. Then I went to this out. To this uh, uh, lunch area and where you eat outside by, ta- on, on tables outside. And I bought myself some spaghetti and a roll and I sat down. And then I heard something like I'd never heard it before. It was beautiful, man. So I wrapped my roll up and my spaghetti. And I followed my ears trying to find out where this was coming from. And uh, <clears throat> every once in a while it would stop. So I had no choice but to stop and wait for it to start again. And eventually I got around behind a buffalo and there were four guys back there singing four part harmony with their lips protruding in each other's face, man. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And they was a group called the Youngsters. And they would go back there every day behind that buffalo and rehearse. And so I went back there every day at lunchtime and stood there with my mouth and eyes wide open, <laughs> listening to them say. And eventually I began to feel like, geez, I ought to be part of this. But I didn't know nothing about nothing musically, actually. I did eventually. I took clarinet at school there and uh, the clarinet the music teacher gave me a D and told me to get, get into anything except for music. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get discouraged though. And then one day I heard Jesse Belvin. You ever hear of Jesse Belvin? Mm-hmm. I heard Jesse Belvin singing a song called One Little no Blessing. Man, I, I was so intrigued by the voice. I looked him up in the phone book, and I called him. I got him after about the third, fourth time Mr. Bell, I want to sing, I want to sound just like you. He gave me a great piece of advice. He said, get your own style, leave mine, if alone. I said, well, I thought that'd be a compliment. He said, you ever hear Johnny Ace? I said, yeah, I heard Johnny Ace. He sounded, I like him too, but that voice, you got style. He said, you don't get it by now, boy, I'm hanging up. I said, oh, no, please don't hang up. I don't know what y'all are doing, but I just want to be a part of this. And he was nice enough to invite me to rehearsal that weekend with a group called The Turks. Turks had hit records on the radio too. So I went over there, man, by the time I left, I had to be a part of this thing somehow. And so I started a little group with my cousins, and uh, we uh, eventually began to sound like something. But, and I found this guy who had a record company and the Rick and Dink studio in the neighborhood uh, Jesse Belvin told me about him. So I went by his place. Am I talking too much?
1: <laughs> no, you're doing good. Yeah.
0: Went by his place and I told him I had a group. Uh, and I, we were just getting started and I wondered if he'd give us an audition. He, he said, yeah, well, as soon as you get it together, come on in here. So we, got, we didn't get it together. Yeah, I mean, we were all right. We went in there in one night and he said, and he heard us sing, he said, no, you're not ready yet, so I'm going to record you so you know how you sound. So my cousin, he was, I had two cousins and another guy in the group, so my cousin, he sang this beautiful song, he had a beautiful voice. He sang a couple of songs, then I got up to sing, the man said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you never try to sing lead, you stay in the background. <laughs> oh, I broke my heart, man. So I, I there was a tunnel not far from my house. So I went, at night I go down that tunnel for about three, four months, and I sang so I could hear myself coming back in the echo. And I went back to his place one night and wrote a couple of songs. And I played one of those songs, hoping he wouldn't stop me before I got through the first verse. When I finished, he said, you're not the same guy. I don't believe this. You're not the same guy. You can't be. He said, you're going to be my superstar. And that was about eight months after I went over to Mr. Belvin's house. I went to the studio. He took me in the studio and recorded that song. It was my first recording and my first local hit record. What's the title? Eternally. It's by a group called The Twilighters. Uh, strange, the, the drama.
1: So first, the cl- first you were discouraged about the clarinet, then you're singing, but you overcame all that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I was determined. I had to be a part of this thing, you know? Uh, yeah, I ended up playing the guitar. And I became a studio musician, but before I did that, I became an a man for a record company, Delphi Records, and co-produced a hit called, Those Old Evil Goodies Remind Me of You. And when my boss who was known to be very stingy, he refused to pay me what he promised to pay me, so I quit that job and I uh, start uh, producing myself. Charles,
1: Charles how, how did you feel when you first heard a record you were involved with on the radio?
0: Man, you gotta read this book. Not, not this book, my next book. Because, like I say, my father, he wasn't having it. And the first night <laughs> that uh, actually this guy, he recorded me and he set my record in the corner in his office for about four or five months, I guess. So I just gave up on the whole idea that nothing had happened there, all that time. Then one day I left school and I, just, I hadn't seen the guy, I just happened to drop by his office on the way from school. Something told me to drop by. I dropped by and he said, you're going to be played on the radio tonight. I said, Are you kidding. I said, no. The Huggy Boy, gonna play your record tonight on the radio. So I was excited. I went and told my friends, you know, I'm gonna be on the radio tonight. And one of my friends who was my staunchest competitor, his name was Sleepy, his name, real name was Samuel Vance, but they had sleepy eyes, so we called him Sleepy. He picked me up, and he and his brother, and, and one of the guys that will be in the group if it hits. We all got to riding around waiting for a Huggy boy to play that record. We started out by nine o'clock, a lot of stuff happened between nine and twelve, but by, he, by twelve he had played it, so I said, well, let's go, man, take me home and give this up, he ain't going to play that record. So they took me home. I went around the side of the house and into the back entrance and when I, by the time I got to the dining room, I heard a horn going. So I ran out the front door to hear my voice on the radio. Oh man. When my father came out of the side door, pissed off. What's all this noise out here? I said, Daddy, that's me on on singing on the radio. I don't care who it it was. was Joe, get that noise out from the front of my house. One of the guys wanted to fight my father, it was a mess. But that's the first time I heard right.
1: <laughs> Kind of uh, mixed uh, feelings on that one, I guess. Kind of
0: conflicting experiences. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't really get to hear it all because of the confusion. But, you know, it's all right.
1: Yeah. So you got into uh, a lot of session work and um, really um, learned the business, right?
0: Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had one of the places I was producing out of, the lady that ran the place, she really did me a favor. She told me how to deal with this business. And thank God I took her advice and it's worked out very well for me.
1: Yeah. And so what led to the formation of the <clears throat> 103rd Street Watts group that you debuted in 1967. What what kind of led up to that?
0: I was um, while well, I was an AR man, I would go out scouting for town. And one night I stumbled into a nightclub just because I heard the music. And I went in there and there was this band in there, and they were there was they had a horn section in a strong rhythm section and they were doing routines and they were dressing uniformly. Yeah, oh my God, this is something, this is what I'm gonna be doing here. So it took me a couple of years. I finally uh, started playing in a nightclub in Pasadena, a plush club, first gig I got. And I, I wasn't in the union. You're supposed to be in the union. So I had I got hired this saxophone player to play sax, and he he uh, and hired him as a leader. So because I couldn't report it as leader of the band till I got myself together with the union. And so it was his name was John Rayford. So it was Big John. Uh, uh, I hired. Him. One of the best old bass players played on a lot of the hit records came out of Los Angeles. Chuck Hamilton uh, played right bass. And I hired a drummer who I had really seen going to school concerts and stuff. He was always playing with, when I hired him and I realized he wasn't very good at all. So I eventually replaced him with another drummer Playing. He played jazz, but he just needed a gig. He would play with us and, uh, uh, until he found himself a jazz gig, but he, he wasn't too particular about playing rock and roll. And uh, two years later, he was still threatening to go play, because we was having so much fun. <laughs> he didn't want to go nowhere. work. And uh, then I, I ended up changing several drummers and I had to change bass players. Uh, Melvin Dunlap, who was the bass player, he had come out here with the OJs, and they weren't doing very much, so he joined us as the bass player. So I had a four-piece band, and then some guys would come and want to sit in, and after a while, when some come sit in, they kept coming back, kept coming back, so I'd hire we split out, we wouldn't making no money hardly at all, but we split out a little money with them until I ended up with nine guys. And uh, then we started getting some halfway decent gigs. And uh, we stayed on one club, at one club on Crenshaw for two and a half years. We played in another a dump down on Florence but the people, they would appreciate that's where we really got ourselves together. Because they come in there, and we were out of tune and wasn't playing right or good, they boo us. But if we was cooking, they screamed and hollered and had a joyous time. So we kind of cut our teeth in that club. Then we went to the Haunted House in Hollywood, on Hollywood and Vine. We stayed there a couple of years. And that's, after that, we got involved with Bill Cosby because he, I was recording with with Bill Cosby and he needed a band to go on the road with him too. So he-
1: How did you first meet Bill
0: Cosby? I was playing on a session at a studio called Nashville West on Melrose. And uh, he came in with Fred Smith uh, who was a producer? Fred had produced the Olympics. You yeah, hit to the Olympics. Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, produced a few hits on them. He produced Jackie Lee. He produced Bob and Earl. And so Warner Brothers appointed him to produce Bill Cosby's first singing record, a musical record, because he didn't sing much. He more or less rapped. And so I'm in there playing with this band that I play with a lot of times in the studio. And here comes Fred Smith and Bill Cosby looking for a band to record his first single, which is a song called Little Old Man, which was actually Stevie Wonder's uptight, but it was a, a, a revised version of that. And so. Two weeks later, we were in there recording that song with Bill Cosby. So that's how I met Bill.
1: Oh, and that helped you get the uh, deal with Warner Brothers for your group.
0: Yeah, he actually, his contract was coming up to end at Warner Brothers. So he talked them into to signing us and a lady named Dolores Gibson. And uh I don't think they thought we were going to to be able to do anything but i was ready <laughs> so i i asked him to back a truck up to the horn house the place the club was playing in and we recorded a live album and out of that came do your thing which was a pretty big record
1: yeah the first one though was hot heat and sweat and sweet groove right
0: that's a different album that's yeah, Smith produced
1: that album. Did that one come f- first though? Yeah, yeah,
0: and I produced uh, together,
1: and then together came next. Yeah, um, when, when you guys first started getting your albums, you know, who did you like aspire to? Who are some of the other acts of the time that you were like, hey, we want to be like them or bigger than them? Or
0: well, now. We were doing Top Forty, a lot of Top Forty, <clears throat> and uh, we did a lot of oldest reading, James Brown, Temptations. But I had heard a live album a few years back by James Brown at the Apollo Theater, which is the real reason that I backed the truck up to the Hornet House to record my band. So. James Brown was <clears throat> one of the key people that inspired me. Otis oh, Redding definitely inspired inspired me. And uh, we, like I say, we're doing top forty, so we're doing everybody's tunes. Who
1: Who inspired you, uh, guitar wise or instrumentally? Adolph Jacobs.
0: Adolf Jacobs. Adolph Jacobs, man, he could make a guitar rhythmically. He could make an earthquake. He he was the coasters' guitar player. But he also played with the band that I was telling you about, I stumbled upon him that night. He wasn't with the band that night, but all the other times I saw that band, most all the other times, he was a guitar player. I learned how to play just by watching him, because I'm left-handed. And I didn't have a left-handed guitar. My one of the guys in the group I was singing with had, had a, a, a right-handed guitar, so he let me mess around with it. So I taught myself to play on the thing. But I taught myself with Adolf was the one, and really I watched him to learn.
1: Did did that make you look up a little bit to Jimi Hendrix when he came on the scene, being a left-handed player?
0: But he was different. Now Jimmy, Jimmy Henry picked my guitar up and turned it this way and played it, and he turned it this way and played. I was supposed not to be able to play guitar. As a matter of fact, when I went to get lessons, uh, after I taught myself so much, I went to get lessons to the guy in the neighborhood, was supposed to be the teacher. And I sat down for about half an hour of consultation. And with my guitar in front of me, open in the case. And he said, okay, let me see what you can do. I picked up my guitar. He said, What's this? I said, What do you mean? What's this? You hold a guitar like that. Turn that guitar. I said, this is the way I place. And not in here, you won't. I said, well, let me show you what I know at least. You know, you want in here, not like that. Get out of here. Kick me out.
1: Another bump in the road.
0: <laughs> I, I I went to uh, you know who Gene Page is? Yeah. Gene Page used to come by my house and bring a group or something and for me to play the guitar. Gene good at adapting other people's styles. He so he come by and, and I play with the group, so he would hire me to go to the studio the next day. And play on the session. And I'd be so embarrassed, because he'd be in that team would have 30, 35 musicians in there, string players, horn players, everybody. And I couldn't read a lit. So he sitting me down and he got a paper that's almost black with notes, he put in front of me. So I figured, well maybe if I play what I was playing, you know, just play like I always play behind the group, it'd be all right. But he wanted it like he had heard it and rolled it out. Look, Charles, it goes like this. See them up there. see this. And I didn't know one thing, so I said, I went to City College to uh, learn music theory. And within about eight months time, I, I couldn't stay out of the studio. I would, they wanted me in, somebody wanted me in there all day, every day. Matter of fact, I did something real stupid. I was telling somebody about yesterday. Mike Nesbitt, you know who that is? From the Monkees? Yeah. Uh-huh. Mike Nesbitt would hire me and pay me triple skill every day of the week that I could come to go to RCA studio with him. While well, he played the organ, I played the guitar, just, just the jam. And he was hit, taking all that stuff on tape I probably made all the monkeys hits and wouldn't know one from the other. I just sit there jamming and I stupid. And he ended up broke. Then he sued Columbia and he won. He About 20 years ago, he won $500 million. Wow. I called him up. He ain't answered the phone yet. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, that's, a, that's just about the stupidest thing. One of the stupidest thing I ever did. <laughs> well,
1: you mentioned um, Gene Page, you mentioned a lot of players, but I want to uh, mention for listeners and viewers, on, on those early records, you had people like uh, James Gadson and uh, Al McKay, who went on with Earth, Wind & Fire, and you had uh, James Carmichael involved, and I mean, these are some, some big cats, you know?
0: I taught those guys how to play this stuff. And that's no lie. James Gatson thought he was a jazz drum. I used to drill him day in, day out. Al McKay was playing like Jimi Hendrix when I met him. I taught him to play rhythm. Then the problem happened with Al and I, he challenged me once he learned how to play rhythm. And he was a challenge always. And then, uh, if it wasn't for him, Ed, and they both are, are very dynamic people, but it wasn't for him and James Gadsden. When I would say uh, James Gadsden wasn't for him, my group would still be together. The ones that are alive. Uh, uh, they showed me a lot of appreciation. And I know, I don't talk about it much. I inspired whatever earth went Fire fired through And they're the greatest man on the planet.
1: Wow. Yeah, well, I mean, those guys. Uh, I know Al McKay is a little. Um, I think the word's mercurial, but um, but heck of a player though.
0: He is, he mercurial? Is that egotistical? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that can be part of it. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. He, yeah I, I guess that probably is the right word. Al is, uh, yeah, he's something else. But he he. He learned that rhythm and he plays well. But he used to give me hell sometimes because he's strong. I would teach him the rhythm of some. We recorded Love Land about 40 different days because he hated it. And we go in there and he started playing. I could tell him to play. And then he's jumbling it up, getting, I don't know what it is. He just would not play it right. And then one day I tricked him into doing all of them because every time we did it, it never came out right. So one day we did five slide the family stones, Everyday People. I have a special arrangement of that song. And we were in the studio, we did it, and it was so good when it got through, everybody was laughing. I said, love land, one, two, three, bam. And that's the time to happened. That one time is when it came out.
1: I was going to say, uh, Charles, Yeah, the, the arrangement of uh, everyday people was definitely a different take and really uh, you know, interesting one. You heard it? Yeah, yeah. All
0: right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, that was something we used, we did. I had practice of doing stuff at the clubs, you know, until so we get it tight. And we used to do that every night. And it came out all right.
1: And, and and you were talking about Together, um, and there's actually James Brown, you, you did James, you mentioned James Brown, but you did, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, actually, yeah. on that record.
0: Yeah, I did more than that, but that's the one that came out, yeah.
1: So, Do Your Thing, uh, that's a classic, so funky, um, hit number 11 on the pop chart, crossed over, number 12 on R&B. How did you... Come into that magic of that particular song, and did you know it was a hit right away?
0: I did, yeah. Well, I uh, actually I have to give the group credit for this. We were that night when we walked in the club. They got microphones set up all over the stage, and the guys was kind of nervous, you know. So the first set didn't go right for us, concerned. And I'm a, I'm a heckler for pitch. Now pitch wasn't right. And finally about the third set, we loosened up. And I started singing. Everybody yeah, get on the floor. And we had no arrangement. Everybody just started playing. Do 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 and just start playing and built from that to ding do with all those phrases. Nobody said a word that just happened. It was a a happening. And I I cut it out, took it home, uh, and uh, that was on a Saturday night. And Monday I had a meeting with the group, and I played it, and they said, "Don't, don't associate my name with this. Some of them said, this is a piece of junk. But I felt it what we was doing, I said, man, this is a hit. Man, that's a piece of junk. All person agreed with me was James Ganson, but he didn't agree to everybody that left. He said, yeah, it might be all right. And I put it out, and nothing happened. Uh, eight months later, I got a call from Disc Jockey, Georgie Woods in Philadelphia. Hey, I want you to come star on my show. I said, star on your show? You got to be kidding Yeah. I said, well, what do you mean? Uh, who's on the show? You're Ruth Brown, Chuck Jackson, all my heroes. You got to be kidding What am I going to do on that show? And he told somebody he don't know. I said, uh, he said. Did you know you're number three in Philadelphia?" I said, what? What song? He said, Do Your Thing. I said, you gotta be kidding. He said, no, you're number three in Philadelphia. So I I said, well, listen, let me call you right back. So I called Clyde Bikimbo Warren Brothers and God God, Philadelphia just called me and told me he wanted me to start the show Class said, "Man, the guy's pulling your leg." We stopped tracking that records three months ago. It's dead issue. It? I said, "But he, he sounds serious. Man, pulling your leg, y'all." I said, "Well, at least can't you call and find out what's happening?" He said, "Yeah, I'll call you back in 15 minutes." Five minutes later, ring. I pick up the phone. I don't believe it you 93,000 records in Philadelphia alone. Never heard of with an R&B record. I said, see you guys, they on your job. He said, it could be just a Philadelphia record. I said, 93,000 people in Philadelphia think it's a hit, Then 93,000 in New York, and LA, and everywhere else gonna think it's a hit. So he did Did. Next thing I know, you come to Isaac Brothers right down there in uh, New Jersey. They didn't heard Do Your Thing, they come up with Issue Thing. Mm-hmm. So now my record's going up sharp, theirs going up higher, mine go up, and they do start doing that, the two records. Do Your Thing was in the charts 27 weeks that year. That's the longest record in the charts, I think. Anyway, uh, they sold a lot of records. And that, that was really the beginning of the band's career.
1: Did, did you end up doing any shows with the Isleys around that time and where you both would no. do those songs?
0: I ran into the Isley Brothers at LA Air, airport one day and, and I introduced myself to them. And they told me, they said, man, we be working off of your stuff. We spin off for you. I said, yeah, I know. But I, I, I pulled a little egotistical thing and then I turned and walked away. I shouldn't have done that. So next time I saw them, I apologized for that. They saw oh, it's cool. But I put them back on the map. They were off the map for a long time, but they got back on and they stayed on here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, who were who some of the, uh, you know, bigger acts that you got to share stages with in, you know, the early part of the band's career?
0: Everybody uh everybody. Uh we nobody wanna believe this, I'm sure. But we ran the temptations off the stage. We have been working for two and a half years at haunted house working on routines and everything. We we had the tightest thing going on, man. Uh but thanks to people that inside of the group that was not happy and a manager that I fired that was very powerful um, they disrupted my group but uh, that's all right God's been good to me anyway you know so I'm, I'm not complaining. Um,
1: dear thing. I remember hearing um, the Ohio players uh, redid that in the early '80s, a pretty funky version too.
0: I didn't like it. I did. I didn't like didn't, it. I did it with them.
1: Oh, you did? Yeah, they were trying to. Uh, I mean, they had really fallen off by then. They were trying to find a way to get back.
0: Well, they, you know, your love means everything to me. My yeah. son.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They told me that's what inspired them to get into business to start putting a band together. Oh. Yeah, well, I did that with them and Richard Fields. Right, Dimples, yeah. Yeah, and when I left the studio, Richard put them electric drums on there. I don't like the electric drum; They, they kill the spirit in the music. So uh, he messed it up for them, I'm concerned. But we, it never was, it never did flow like it should because the drummer that they had on there, he was, I don't know if you, I'm sure you understand. He was straight ahead, you know what I mean? It,
1: not enough pocket. Yeah, we
0: were, you know, the heartbeat, we follow the heartbeat, that's what it's all about. When you hear music, your heart synchronizes with it. So the heartbeat is not stern like that, it's, you know, up and down and all around and everything like that. People, a lot of people don't understand that. You might understand what I'm saying. But uh, uh, that's the kind of trauma they had on that thing, and it was kind of stiff to me.
1: Yeah, it's when the electronics really started coming in, and they were just trying to stay current, you know, with whatever was coming in.
0: Where did you hear that? What? Uh, do you think by the Ohio Players.
1: Oh, well, I had all the Ohio Players records, so...
0: Oh, okay, I don't know which one it's on. So uh, I can't go back and look it up. I yeah, probably- it was on
1: they were on. I uh, had moved on to Boardwalk, a label called Boardwalk at the time. After uh, leaving, they were on Mercury, then Arista, and then Boardwalk. And they on Boardwalk, they did a lot of covers. They did Otis Redding, Try Little Tenderness, and they did, yeah. you know, Your Song, and um, yeah.
0: I so. probably find it on YouTube anyway. I forgot about it. You might go Santa Maria's version of that.
1: Mm, no, is that a good one?
0: Yeah, it's pretty good. I'll
1: have to check that out. What yearabouts
0: was that? Do you know? 68, something like that.
1: There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkenslift.net. Thank you very much.